right, starting the official recording, we will be in Acts chapter 18. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Acts chapter 18. What we're going to do today is we're kind of going to work through Corinth. Uh, then we're going to move on to Antioch uh, and then to Ephesus. And uh, as we go through those three places, we're going to focus on certain people. So we're going to, we're going to focus on the work of the ministry in Paul. We're going to focus on the work of the ministry in uh, Aquila and Priscilla, kind of our um, church member all-stars that we find. And then we're going we're gonna to work our way through Apollos. So um, let's start then at the beginning, which is always a good place to start. Uh, would somebody read for us um, Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 4? Anybody willing to start us off by reading those first four verses? Charlie, nice, clear, and loud, please, sir. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, uh, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, to whom Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. Okay, well, we have um, kind of the introduction to Corinth, and we have the introduction to Aquila and Priscilla. I'm really excited about Aquila and Priscilla this morning. That's kind of my favorite part of what we're going to be talking about. But let's give a little bit of a historic background of Corinth, okay? So Corinth was the capital of Achaia, uh, a region in Greece, and it was about 50 miles away from Athens, which means it was about a three-day journey by foot, okay? So they had to walk three days, or Paul did, to get to Corinth, all right? Corinth was actually seen as more intellectual and more immoral than Athens, right? So Athens, we kind of thought this is the peak of intellectualism, right? They're all about their different gods and their different philosophies. And then Corinth kind of turns up their nose at Athens, like, oh, you're like the Jay-Z. That's cute. Come over here to, or to Corinth, and we'll show you what it really looks like to be intellectual, um, but more actually immoral. So Athens certainly known um, for its immorality, but Corinth is going to blow that out of the water. And that's because Corinth was the site of a specific god uh, of immorality. Does anyone know the god that was worshipped in Corinth, or one of the gods, but this would be kind of... There was a main temple to this god in Corinth. Gotta be loud. Diana. Diana, okay, there's one. That's, but that's not the specific one that was worshipped in Corinth. What, Ted? Ted, yes. Aphrodite. Uh, Aphrodite was the main god that was worshipped there uh, in Corinth. And, and the immorality comes out uh, in how this God was worshipped, okay? At night, there were literally a thousand prostitutes to the temple of Aphrodite that would go out into the streets. So if we think of immorality at its peak, we think of Corinth, okay? So the sexual promiscuity of Corinth was actually proverbial, meaning like they would make proverbs out of this, right? When you would make a bad proverb, you would say, like the Corinth. The Corinthians. So we actually see in the Greek, Corinth, 
ozomia meant to practice immorality. So it literally, the practice of immorality was the name of Corinth. Okay, this is how it was connected to each other. Or Corinthiestes was a synonym for a harlot. So Corinth was literally the Vanity Fair uh, of the Roman Empire. But the gospel of Christ crucified summoned the Corinthians to repentance and holiness and warned them that the sexually immoral would not inherit the kingdom of God. That's a quote from uh, John Stott, who's been a helpful guide for me as I've been working through the book of Acts. Um, so this is, this is the background to which Paul is going to go and do ministry in this place of Corinth. Okay, And so that's how we see Paul, or after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And then he found this peculiar couple. Okay, So he found this couple, Aquila and Priscilla. Okay, now I talked about this last week. Why were Jews, um, where was the place that Jews were being expelled from? Do you guys remember? There's a certain place, where? Rome. So they were expelled from Rome, but specifically they were done, or they were expelled by the Roman emperor, Emperor Claudius. Okay, it was in the year of AD 49. So this um, kind of uh, pushed out all the Jews to go find major uh, areas to where they could uh, do trade and also set up synagogues. So here's uh, another quote, I believe, from Mr. Stott. Oh, no, this is from somebody else. This is from uh, Eckerd Schnabel, friendly German name. Um, he said, the Roman historian Suetonius relates measures that Claudius initiated against men of foreign birth who are mentioned in connection with the Jews. So this is why Claudius is going to be expelling everybody. Mentioned with connection with the Jews who constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Christus. Interesting. That name kind of sounds familiar, right? Uh, it's actually misspelled, uh, but the Roman emperor was pushing out these people because of the instigation of a peculiar people in this group of Christians, and they were related to a man named Christus. Now, in the Greek, we would see Christ's name as Christus, right? But there was a misspelling, so I'm going I'm to go back to it. So constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Christus, with the result that he expelled them from Rome. The relationship of his edicts has been described as an intensification of Claudius's restrictive Jewish policies. Most scholars see the name, the name as Christus uh, in Sustinius's work as a misunderstanding and interpret the text as referring to Jesus Christ. So the disturbances were provoked by the missionary outreach of the Jewish Christians who preached Jesus as Messiah in the synagogues of Rome. So maybe an encouragement to us uh, that the, this Roman, um, the, the city of Rome specifically, would be pushing out Christians being expelled from Rome because of their work uh, of proclaiming Christ as Savior and as Lord, which would obviously make the Romans mad because uh, of, of Caesar worship, or Caesar worship. All right, so it is then assumed, if we're going to be talking about Aquila and Priscilla, so that, that fun long quote was to set up uh, Aquila and Priscilla, uh, it should be assumed then when we read this 
that Aquila and Priscilla are actually already Christians because of Paul seeking them out, Paul being able to live with them, do ministry with them, and then we'll see because of their, um, their impact in ministry as the chapter goes on, but also because there's no specific mention of their conversion. So we see then Aquila and Priscilla as both being believers of Christ already when they meet Paul in Corinth. Now, they both shared the same work, which was being a tent maker, which was a very sought-after project, or very sought-after product in major cities, whether that was gonna be for armies to be able to use tents, whether that was for sojourners who needed tents. They actually set up tents in public places for people to rent, to use, to sleep in those areas. So tent making was a really big deal. Uh, it, it was something that a lot of people needed, and so that work was kind of a good bivocational work to use. Now, some people will say, this is Paul only advocating that all preachers should be bivocational. I'm glad I saw a chuckle back there as I nervously bring this up, right, as a vocational elder. Um, so do you guys think that Paul only mentions a bivocational way uh, for pastors to make a living? I'm seeing a big Ted shake now. Okay, why not? Okay. Yeah, don't muzzle the ox, right? Okay, well, yes. And so I think a few verses that we want to notch down, just our family uh, last night was working through 1 Timothy 5, uh, in our um, family worship, 1 Timothy 5.17 actually starts to walk through, right, what Paul says to Timothy about being paid. Don't muzzle the ox. A laborer is worth his wages. Um, you can also go to Galatians 6.6, 6, as well as 1 Corinthians 9.4 and following to see how Paul specifically is going to be unpacking the idea of vocational or a, a full-time elder preacher to be preaching the word of God. But that doesn't mean we can't do bivocational work. That doesn't mean that God might not put a preacher or a pastor in a position where he needs to be bivocational. And we see that Paul, um, who was hungry and provoked in Acts chapter 17, remember, he just, he couldn't help himself. He had to go out there and he had to get after everybody because of their idol worship. But Paul had to work. Like, Paul wasn't doing that 24-7. Paul had to go make some tents to be able to survive. So, just just showing you that vocation is good um, and there's a little bit of you know talk about should pastors be bivocational or vocational and this is just one of the ways in which you can see bivocational work is appropriate and it and it is good so they have this work of being tent makers so Paul he actually seeks them out he lives with them and then he works with them so I, I just really like this Aquila and Priscilla because we're gonna see them being an important um, kind of theme that continues through this chapter. And I wish you had your notes because you could follow along with my reasoning here. Um, but, so now we see Paul's ministry to the Jews. What was Paul's ministry to the Jews? How would he, when he would go to a new city, what was the thing that he did? Goes to the synagogue, right? He's going to reason in the synagogue. Um, he's going to reason and persuade, okay? Those being kind of his modus operandi, his, his thing he's going to do every time. 
He's going to go and he's going to reason with the Jews and he's going to try to persuade them. And now how is he going to persuade them? What is he using? He's using the Old Testament. right? He's using the scriptures because that's the infallible word of God and the Jews hold to that same thing. So he's going to go into the synagogue. He's going to point them to scripture. He's going to reason with them, which is not just arguing, although an argument is a part of it, but it's a dialogue. And then he's going to try to persuade them to believe in Christ. So I love to see how intense Paul's teaching is. So for those of you that make fun of me when I get in the pulpit and start getting a little excited, right? Uh, I just want to say it's theological. Paul gets intense too, okay? So what I'm going to say about Paul's intensity uh, is, is the reality that when Paul is going to be um, preaching, do you remember who Paul was so longing to see in the last chapter? Who were the people that Paul was like, oh, I want these guys with me? Who were those two people? Yell it out. Who? Who? I'm, I'm hearing kind of, I'm going to go, I'm going to walk over here so you have to say it louder or this side. Who are the two people? Remember, you can go, you can look in your Bibles. This is an open book test, okay? Uh, look in your Bibles. Who are the two people in Acts 17 that Paul's like, oh, and, and write to them and tell them to come as soon as possible? Boom! Emma! Hey, everybody, say hi to Emma. Uh, if you guys are new to us, and I'm embarrassing her and her dad's walking in, uh, Emma is one of our faithful members who is off at college, uh, and she's back. And so we're excited to see Emma, so glad she's here and answering questions once again. Okay, So it's going to be Silas and Timothy, the guys that he was like, I need my dudes. I need my, my backup, right? I need the people who I love. He wrote to them to come quickly. And what I think is really funny is that the scripture talks about them coming. With Sil when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Okay, It's like Paul didn't even notice the people he was so excited to come back, so excited to do ministry with, he was completely occupied. He's like, not important. I'm reasoning with the Jews right now. I'll, I'll get to hang out with you guys later. I mean, he, this is literally inspired scripture earlier saying, I need them to be with me. And then he's in the teaching and the preaching, and he's not even aware. He's like completely oblivious that his boys just got back into town. Anyways, that's just a little nugget that I thought I like laughed when I read it uh, this week and thought it was really funny. So anyways, it continues. Uh, and says, and when they, the Jews, opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. For now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Okay, what's happening here? What is Paul doing? What is he doing by shaking out his garments? Absolutely. It's a, it's a rebuke, right? Like, I'm done with you. You can have this dust back. I'm getting out of here kind of thing. But specifically, the blood be on your own heads. Why do you think that's an important statement that Paul made? He's actually acting in a certain Old Testament type right now when he says this. Do you guys know what he's doing? Charlie! 
right? So, so tell, me, tell us, what, what do you think that is? Charlie's on point right now. Open your Bible to Ezekiel 33, and somebody read for us verses 1 through 6. Ezekiel 33, verses 1 through 6. Who's our reader? You got it? So Paul is literally seeing himself as the watchman like Ezekiel, right? He is saying, I'm blowing the trumpet. You guys have missed the Messiah. I'm going to explain to you how he's the Messiah, and you need to believe. And as they reviled him, and as they opposed him, he finally said, fine. Here's my dust off my, off my robes um, and, and my sandals. And I'm telling you, your blood is on your own head. Do you think in that moment the Jews knew what he was talking about? Oh, yeah. Ted? he's their watchman. He's saying, guys, wake up. I need you to hear this. And they're not hearing it. So he finally gets to the point where he shakes out his robes and done. Okay, so let's continue. Uh, someone, would you read for me verses 7 through 11? Oh, I'm sorry. Acts 18. That would have been weird if you kept going through Ezekiel. Uh, Acts chapter 18 verses 7 through 11. Then he left there and went to the house of
Okay, so now we're going to see that Paul's ministry, he's shaking out his robes, he's going to move to the Gentiles, right? Which is what he typically does. But even as he has done this, we see that Paul has won a convert in the synagogue's ruler of all people. The person who is leading all of this, he actually comes to know Christ. And then we see lots of Gentiles coming to know Christ. And then we have this vision from the Lord, right? So we're seeing converts happening, and then we see this vision of the Lord that, that God's telling him not to be afraid. And I don't know if you guys saw this, but I'm like, wait a minute. Paul gets reviled everywhere, right? He gets, he gets opposed everywhere. Why is it that Paul needed this, like, specific encouragement from Christ in this moment? Like, why did he need it? It kind of it seems like he's doing well. Like, converts are coming to him. People are believing, and this is when it's fun to see how Scripture helps us understand Scripture. So somebody read for us 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. And I think this is going to help us. Now remember, Corinthians, hello, hello, that's Corinth, right? That's, that's where he's doing his ministry. So we're going to see a little bit of maybe where this fear is from. So who's at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3? Thank you. Yeah. Paul, going to Corinth, was actually really scared. He was fearful. Um, this, this is a literal fear. Like, he was fearful to go to Corinth. Now, now why exactly? This is my favorite cop-out. I don't know. It's not, it's not specifically said in the scripture, right? It doesn't tell us exactly why he was so afraid. But we do see, like I was saying, that this is kind of the capital of immorality. This is the, the capital of intelli intelligence, right? These are smart people. And, and Paul is saying, I did not come to you with this kind of worldly wisdom. I came to you only knowing Christ and Christ crucified in much fear and trembling, okay? The Corinthians were known... Uh, for being good um, orders, for being, and, and again, for being very immoral. So Paul, being weak, comes here, and he's, he's just scared. And, and praise be to God, because sometimes I think of Paul as the dude who's just charging on forward, never fear in his life, can totally dominate in any situation, always knows the right words, always knows where to go, getting converts everywhere, and you're like, yeah, all-star Paul. And then you're like, but I can't do any of that. And the answer is, yes, you can't. Only inspired by, or only helped by the Spirit can you do those things. But Paul is still a human. He's still fearful. And so Christ literally appears to Paul. Now, you might say, well, it just says, Lord, Andrew, are you sure that that's Christ? This is the way that Luke, the author, when he is using this word for Lord, he is specifically referring to Christ as Lord. So, yes, this is Christ, the Lord, coming to him in a vision. Or in, was it a vision? I want to make sure I answer that. Um, yes? Okay, good. Um, so, the Lord comes and he says this, and he says a specific few things. Number one, 
Christ himself encourages Paul, do not be afraid. An imperative, right? This is a command from Christ. Do not be afraid. Go on speaking. Don't stop. I know you're fearful. I know you're trembling. Don't stop. Keep speaking. Do not be silent. That one's actually not an imperative, but it kind of flows with the other imperatives. Do not be silent. So don't be quiet, right? And then he promises him, because I'm not going to let these bad things happen to you. Now, pause. I'm not saying every time you're fearful that God's not going to allow the bad things to happen, because sometimes we need those things, right? The scary things that happen to us. Um, But in Paul's case, he's saying, listen, dude, keep doing it. God did not say dude. Listen, Paul, keep doing it. I'm not going to let anyone hurt you, right? And, and we've seen angry mobs get after Paul. Paul is like uh, the champion of shipwrecks, bitten by vipers, uh, stoned almost to death, whipped. I mean, the dude has just been through the ringer, right? And, and so Jesus is saying, you won't be harmed. Don't be silent. I have many people in the city. I love that. So he's saying, keep going. You need to keep going because there are people who are going to hear the word and they're going to believe. And so he stayed in Corinth, one of the longest places he stayed. So he stays there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But at this point, among them means the Gentiles because he's already shaken out his robe to the Jews. So we see all of this and then we see God's promise or Christ's promise to him fulfilled. Because then we see that the Jews were like, that's it, grab this dude, let's take him to the proconsul, right? So then we see this ministry to the Jews still, or to the Gentiles still happening because a Gentile proconsul uh, ends up vindicating Paul. Galileo, or Gal- I don't think it's Galileo, it's Galileo, uh, refuses to listen to the Jewish case about Paul. He's like, listen, this is not our law. This is your law. You're you're mixing words here. I'm not having anything to do with this. Get out, right? And then, kind of a seeing God's justice at hand, a mob rule ends up happening right in front of his eyes, and they end up beating up the new synagogue ruler, right? He gets uh, blamed for this because of his failed attempt uh, to indict Paul. And so he gets beat up. So this is what the scripture says. It says, but when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing of vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal, and they seized Sothenes and the ruler of the synagogue and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. So we see that Paul continues ministry here in Corinth after viewing Christ's promise to him immediately fulfilled and that he will not be harmed. So he was there for another year and a half or so until he was released by the Spirit to continue doing his ministry. All right, uh, I'll let somebody else read this time. Uh, If you guys would read, let's do 18 through 21, and then we'll 
end with our, our friend Apollos. So, uh, yeah, 18 through 21. Somebody would read that for me. Will you just go through um, 23 as well, brother? So I make everybody else read when there are hard words that I don't know how to pronounce. So I just make you guys read it and then pretend like I knew the whole time that it meant. Um, but, okay, so let's look at, at the ministry as it continues en route to Antioch, okay? So we have this name of this peculiar couple coming up again. Here comes Aquila and Priscilla. Um, I want you to notice the prominence of these guys' names, that it keeps coming up in this chapter, and then if you know your Bibles, it's going to keep coming up in Paul's letters to either Rome or to the Corinthians, we're going to be talking about Aquila and Priscilla um, again and again. So uh, they will go on to play an important role in Paul's life and ministry. So Aquila and Priscilla are not some sort of um, super apostle. They're not, uh, they're not a pastor. They're just godly people who love Jesus and want to help out with the ministry. They just get me excited like Aquila and Priscilla. All right, so then um, what is a vow? That was random, right? All of a sudden we have this vow talk and him cutting his hair. What, what's a vow? Ryan, you look really excited to answer this question. Ah, okay. So a Nazarite vow. What is a Nazarite vow, Ryan? Okay, and what do you do with this Nazarite vow? Something that I don't have. <laughs> I, would, I would have just finished my vow. Um, the Nazarite vow is when you let your hair grow and you don't cut it. But you're right. It, it's, so we're going to go over vows right now because this is something that's kind of peculiar to us. And uh, we are not Roman Catholic. So we're like, no vows. I don't like you. But let's, let's just look at a vow for a second. Okay? So a vow, a definition of a vow, are promises made to God usually in the context of worship or religious practice, there was no requirement on any Israelite to make vows, but once made, they were binding and had to be kept. So, vows were made to do certain things. Number one, again, if you have notes, tell us, you'd be filling these things out, you'd be really excited about it. Uh, number one, vows were made to elicit God's help. Okay, this is why somebody would make a vow. They wanted to elicit God's help. Number two, they wanted to express thanksgiving. Okay, they wanted to say thank you to God, therefore I'm going to do this vow. And then finally, they were to praise God. Now Ryan, you have volunteered yourself to open your Bible to Numbers chapter 6 and read for us verses 1 through 5 to give us some context 
of what this could be for Paul's vow. Because I think you're right, Ryan. I think it is a Nazarite vow, but I, we can't say for certain. But it, it seems pretty, pretty similar. So why don't you read that, and then, and then I'm going to have two more verses for you to read after that. So number six, verses one through five. Stop for a second. Don't you love that when, they, when I stop you right in the middle of it? To separate yourself. Okay? That separation is an act of holiness. I'm going to separate myself from other people. That's actually what our word for holy, hagios, in the Greek, actually means. It means to separate. We're not going to be like other people anymore. We're going to try to separate ourselves and become more holy. Keep going, right? And now we read 18 through 20. Same chapter, verses 18 through 20. So Paul has separated himself, if it is a Nazarite vow, right? Because it doesn't tell us specifically, but the cutting of the hair seems to put us at a Nazarite vow. So I think you're right, Ryan. Um, I think it is a Nazarite vow. And I think Paul is doing this to, to be used as a means of winning over his Jewish brothers in a new place. Or Paul becomes all things to all people, right? We've heard Paul say that before. And so he is doing this vow in order to give himself an audience with some of the holy people and what uh, we were saying uh, is pronounced sentry, maybe? Maybe Keith said it better than I did. Um, but whatever, whatever that place is, Paul is trying to win an audience here. He's trying to, he, he ends up cutting his hair to show them, look, I've been under this vow and now I would like to do some ministry with you. So there is just a quick flyover of some vow talk. Um, I think vows are pretty interesting and fun to, to dig into. Um, so if you have you know, free time, feel free to jump into that. So Paul then makes his way to Ephesus, and he does what he usually does. Um, he goes into the synagogue. Now, the, the people in Ephesus actually really liked Paul and wanted him to continue. And I found this really interesting. Paul refuses. They're like, please stay a while. And Paul says, no, um, I'll come back uh, if, if God wills it. So 
So although these guys were enjoying Paul's ministry, Paul was more concerned about the will of God than the will of man. Okay? So even though there was some fruitfulness here and people were saying, stay, Paul, stay, he says, no, God has this mission for me. I need to go. So I think that was really interesting to hear how Paul, even though he was um, kind of winning people over, ends up saying, no, I must leave. And then he continues on to strengthen the disciples. Now, that word that they use in strengthening actually tells us that this isn't really evangelism anymore. What he's doing is that he's confirming and establishing the faith of other Christians as he continues. So when you see that word strengthen the disciples, he's actually, this is like, this is like more discipleship. It's not evangelism at this point. So, you know, Paul's not just a missionary. He's also a discipler. He's really concerned about people becoming more and more sanctified. Okay, now we get to Apollos, who I think is really, really interesting. Just listen to this line to describe Apollos. He's an Egyptian Jewish Christian minister or a Christian missionary. Just listen to that one more time. An Egyptian Jewish Christian missionary. Can you get any more words into that sentence uh, to make this guy more cool? Like he just seems really, he's like the most interesting man in the world, right? This Apollos, he just shows up out of nowhere. Um, he's from Alexandria. That's why we know he's Egyptian. Um, he's Jewish and Christian because of what we're going to read in a second. So now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man and competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila, that's what I'm talking about, heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Ooh, ooh, friends, this is all of our responsibilities at the mouth. I need to calm down. Uh, but this is for everybody, right? This Priscilla and Aquila talk, this is for you and for me. Like, we need to pull people aside and, and encourage them and disciple them. Okay, but we'll I'll unpack that a little more here in a second. And um, so they, they taught him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had been saved. Sovereignty check, right? Uh, for the, he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. Okay, so when we look at Apollos, we see that he was eloquent, eloquent learned, cultured, meaning he most likely received a Greek education of rhetoric while he was in Alexandria. He was competent in the scriptures, which we understand as the Old Testament in this context. So if this guy is competent in the scriptures, this means that he had been trained as a Jew, but not only as a Jew, because he was instructed in the way of the Lord. Man, this guy checks all the boxes, okay? So he's gotten a Greek education, most likely. He's gotten an education in the Old Testament, and someone, somewhere, shared the gospel with him and discipled him. He's like the ultimate, right? He's all these things come together ready to share the gospel. And um, why I like him 
because he was fervent in spirit, which means uh, he was very excited and passionate about Christ. But he didn't know everything. He only knew the baptism of John, this baptism of repentance. He didn't understand the baptism that Christ has commanded, uh, that we would be disciples of Christ, putting our faith in him as our Lord and Savior, a work that has been done in our heart, uh, right, and is our outward expression of what Christ has already done in our lives. And so he didn't know that baptism yet. He had not been discipled in that way. So most likely, he is, he is propagating John's baptism, and he's had no one ever refute him because, guys, this is brand new, right? This is all of this Christian stuff and refuting and explaining and reasoning and persuading about Christ being the Messiah. This is like groundbreaking stuff. And so he is passionate, he's excited, he's trained, he's equipped, but he doesn't know everything yet. And maybe that should just knock all of us down a peg or two. Because what happens in our reform circles is, I know everything, and I'm awesome, and now you're going to listen to me tell you about everything, and don't question it, right? And, and never have somebody come up to you and say, hey man, that was really cool, and I love that you love Jesus, but... Um, you're wrong here. Let me show you from scripture how to help. Okay. Um, just notice my, my favorite all-stars, Aquila and Priscilla here for a second. They observed where Apollos needed some more help and they pulled him aside, meaning they did not publicly rebuke him. They did not post on social media about him. They did not make a documentary about it. They pulled him aside privately and told or explained the doctrine more Okay, I can't wait to meet these two in heaven. Because what beautiful discipleship, humility do we see here? These dudes are like Paul's, you know, people. They, oh yeah, we traveled with Paul. We, we went to Ephesus with Paul that one time. No big deal. Um, you know, they're 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 Paul's guys, right? And here's this new young whippersnapper coming up from out of nowhere. Oh man, this guy's really cool. But you know, Paul would probably tell him, yeah, let's, let's go ahead and, and tell everybody about how Paul would dominate this guy, which ends up happening sometime in 1 Corinthians, as we'll see. But these two, they say, hey, Apollos, that's really good. We can tell that you love Jesus. Here's a little more uh, accurately the way to describe this. Let's disciple you up. And then that wasn't it. Then they literally sent a letter of recommendation to the brothers for him to go and do ministry. So not only did they disciple him, but then as he went off, they were like, hey, here comes our boy. He's awesome. And then what did he do? He greatly encouraged those saved by grace. He discipled them as he went preaching the gospel. Okay, so this is your call. Everyone in this room, you are to be Aquilas and Priscilla's. Okay, that's for all of us. Me too. I'm one of the people in this room. We are called to be Aquilas and Priscilla's that we go along in the work of the ministry, discipling, encouraging, um, even, even training and showing people where their error is, and we do it in the spirit of love um, and, and a way to build up the church, okay? All right, with that, let me pray for us. I'll be up here for questions, concerns, and cries of outrage, uh, and you guys will be dismissed. Heavenly Father, your word is like honey in our mouth. As we see of your redemptive history and how you've worked all these things together for your good. 
we are blown away by your precision, by your mercy, by your grace, by your providential hand over all things. Father, I pray that we would be encouraged by your word this morning. Father, I pray for Pastor Joel as he's about to bring us Hebrews chapter 2, the end of the chapter. God, would you prepare our hearts and minds to eat up your word? May it fill us. May it encourage us. May it rebuke us. May it make us more set apart for Christ. God, would you use your servant Joel? Would you give him courage, clarity, um, and uh, just a fervent spirit to bring your word? And we pray this in Jesus' name.